Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. We are lucky today to have a repeat guest on the podcast, Dave Ulrich, who is one of my really favorite people in the world. I love reading his stuff. We don't talk that much, but every time we talk, I really thoroughly enjoy it. Um, he's, he's sort of a, a full human being, which is not always the case with people. Uh, he has written over 30 books. He's uh, an icon in the in the world of sort of HR and leadership and sort of organizational capability. He has written a new book uh, uh, that I have just read called Reinventing the Organization, How Companies Can Deliver Radically Greater Value in Fast-Changing Markets. And actually, first, I should say, Dave, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Peter, what a privilege to be with you again. Uh, I, uh, I appreciate being with you. You're a great thinker and a great partner, and uh, I, I hope this was a great conversation for those who listen. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And, and you know, Dave and I were talking before the show, and, and I just said, look, let's just have this conversation on air because the, we're going to get to the book, and the book is about reinventing the organization, but we're also talking about reinventing ourselves in a sense. And, and I, I was saying to Dave, I had to move our appointment, which he uh, graciously accepted and rescheduled because I had a medical issue that really knocked me out. And everything's fine as far as I know. Everything's fine. Uh, but it really uh, brought me to this point of saying, like, I'm not this, like, superhuman person I, I sort of try to pretend to be. And, and I was saying that I think we often spend the first half of our lives trying to be superhuman, trying to collect accolades and do great stuff and have a great impact and where and 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 this sort of status and and acknowledgement and achievement. It's like an achievement drive to be superhuman and and you know not sleep and get a lot of work and do everything. And then the second half of our lives we spend trying to be human, like trying to open to our vulnerability to ourselves and to each other, to, you know, to, to the challenges, to really have a deep impact, maybe deeper than we were hoping uh, or even thinking about beforehand. And, and to face the challenges that we face as human beings with bodies that are not going to last forever and, and, and with a spirit that, is, um, that, that continues to grow. So let me just, uh, not even a question, but throw that at can you, I, Dave. Can I comment on that? Please. I, uh, first of all, Peter, thanks for sharing. I think vulnerability and transparency endears us. I'm a, I publish on LinkedIn a new article every Tuesday. I wrote one, and I've been afraid to publish it. I'm hmm. going to get emotional here. Um, Take the a title of it, it's a short post. It's Would You Mind? Hmm. And it's about Chuck Nielsen. Chuck was a head of HR at Texas Instruments, one of the greatest HR leaders I've ever worked with. And he was legally blind. Hmm. And when he was blind, he'd go to someone. He said, would you mind helping me up the steps? Would you mind helping me find a chair? And uh, very tender. Wow. He said when people helped him physically, it connected to him emotionally and socially and all the other kind of things. Well, now I'm of the age and you're not there yet. Someday you'll be old like me. <laughs> and I'm having a few health problems. And, I'm, and I hate to share them. Because I think, oh, I'm better than that. You know, mm -hmm. don't, don't express vulnerability. 
So I've written this piece that, and now you're the first one to share it publicly, that I think I need to say to folks, would you mind? Mm. I have a little problem with balance. And people think, oh, you've got a physical problem. You're done. I'm not done. Right. I just got a little problem. And right. so I'm about, and maybe I'll post it in a week, thanks to you. And just saying, <laughs> be transparent. Would you mind helping me? Um, now, it's not the end of the world. Your problem's not the end of the world. You're an elite athlete. I am not an elite athlete. But, but would you mind? And I think that spirit of transparency and vulnerability endears us to others. Final comment, and then get your response. I remember meeting with Warren Bennis, who is one of the great thinkers of this field. Mm -hmm. And he had a hypothesis that I think is true. He said almost every great leader, that's not right, let me start differently. Almost every good leader becomes great after a failure. Hmm. That without some kind of failure, it could be a professional failure, personal failure, and the capacity to learn from that. Failure is not the right word. You probably could find a better word. But the capacity to learn from that thing that didn't go the way you intended creates a vulnerability and a sensitivity in you. I've had a lot of failures. Um, and I hope rather than hiding from them, I learn from them. And so I think what we face physically are not mistakes. They're not losses. They're learning opportunities. And I know you've had Carol Dweck on the program twice. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I think her work on growth mindset is just spectacular. Right. Um, I made my wife a, that's not true. I had somebody make my wife a pillow. I can't embroider. And it said, <laughs> I'm not failing. I'm learning. Yeah. And, uh, and so I think the physical part of life is a source of learning. I think that's what leadership is. So I, I just had a conversation with a guest, uh, Tim Clark on psychological safety. And he has these four levels of psychological safety. And number two is learner, like inclusion safety, and then learner safety, and then contribution safety, and then challenger safety. And one of my comments in the conversation is learner safety is actually much harder than all of them. The only yeah. reason challenger safety is hard, the only reason it's hard to be challenged is because it means I have to be in a place where I don't know. And I could be open to being wrong. And, yeah. and that's what makes it so hard to create that environment is because it's so hard for a leader to say, I, I don't know, and, and I'm willing to be exposed publicly in not knowing when I'm challenged so that we can figure out together. And that's incredibly powerful, but incredibly vulnerable. It is. And that vulnerability, I think, softens us. And, and yeah. whether it's a physical issue that, then again, your, your case study that's not life-threatening, but it's something that causes you to pause. For, for me, it could be a whole host of things that didn't go well. In fact, one of the exercises, I'm going to do it um, tonight to a or in about two nights with a group of college kids. And I know we're not into the book, but I think this might be interesting for readers. And it's from my wife, who's very good in this space. She's got her PhD. I'm going to say to them, think of something that didn't go well for you that was really traumatic. And I've done this with executives. It could be personal around a divorce or a relationship. Mm -hmm. Could be physical. Could be professional. How did you feel? Hmm. And the, and the feelings were always vulnerable at loss. I failed, blah, blah, blah. And, and say to them, just spend 30 seconds living with that. Hmm. And it hurts. Yeah. And the emotions are powerful. Yeah. And don't share this with anyone. Second question. What did you learn? What did you learn? And it takes 20 or 30 seconds. And then people start saying, I'm better than I thought I was. Hmm. By the way, I'm pausing on this with the physical stuff I'm facing now. Yeah, and take your time with this. Like you know, you know it's, like it's really an emotional thing. Right. I'm okay. 
Right. I don't have to be good at that that I didn't do as well on to be good. And and there's a loss. And I hurt. And there's a and loss, a loss and you hurt, right. And and I'm sure, I mean, I won't ask you to do that, but we've all had things yeah. that didn't go well. So what did you learn? Right. And then the third question, what didn't go well, what did you learn? And don't rush this. The third one is, how critical has that been for your life's journey? Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, and I'll share the one that, that I'm not as emotional about as I am with a physical one today. I, I went through school pretty quickly. I know you went to Columbia. I went to school. I got my degree, all that good stuff. Went to the University of Michigan and didn't get tenure. Hmm. Big setback professionally. Right. And it's a complicated story. It was devastating mm-hmm. personally. Well, I stayed at Michigan. I have a job. I'm a chaired professor and all that. But I didn't get tenure. And you know what? That's probably one of the greatest lessons Mm. of my life. What did you learn? Uh, uh, My goal in ideas is not the position I sit on. It's the impact I have on others. Mm -hmm. And and I had a great dean. And he came to me and he said, Dave, you don't have tenure. We're going to create a perch for you at Michigan where you can do the work you love. Hmm. And it will have impact. And we'll give you a three-year renewable contract every year, which is essentially, you know, three year rolling. That's, I don't need tenure. He said, you don't need tenure. Go do what you do. And now 30 books later in a chair right. professor, people have said, do you want tenure? No. <laughs> I mean, that for me was such a great lesson. I'm right. not driven personally by, by the status, by the, by the position I'm driven by the ideas and their impact. So without being as personal as I just was, I won't ask that of you. Again, you don't need to share what the experience was. No, I'm happy. You learned from a difficult experience that has shaped. You are one of the most successful people in this business. Your books are powerful. They're impactful. I look through your podcasts and I encourage your listeners to go look at that list of 30 or 40 or 50 podcasts, 100. They're incredible. I listened to a couple of them uh, to prepare. So without going through what didn't go well, what did you learn from experience X and how has it shaped you? Um, uh, first of all, I, I love the question and I, um, uh, I'm, I'm happy to share. There's, there's so many, there's so many, and one that I'm experiencing right now around my physicality, which I'm happy to share. In fact, why don't I share that one? Because in some ways it's the most vulnerable, uh, because it's what I'm experiencing right now. So I, you know, I woke up and, uh, I, 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 was skiing in the morning and my left hip started hurting and by the end of the uh by the end of the night I couldn't stand I was in excruciating pain the next morning I couldn't stand I was in excruciating pain and and I'm I'm now 52 um when I was 50 I got a shingles shot uh to avoid shingles and a week later I got a full blown case of shingles and then after that I was on a bike, uh, you know, uh, uh, maybe a month and a half, two months later, I was on a bike and I hit a pothole and I went headfirst into a parked car. I dented the car, um, was in the emergency room. And then since then, my right hip's not really like, like nothing's, nothing's like the way it was. And, and now like it's a few years later and I've got this, you know, excruciating pain and, and it, it, it sort of brought me in terms of, you know, and this is one failure. Like, this is a failure of someone who, by the way, I, I, I've worked out throughout that every single day. Like, I can't not move my body. It feels 
Like I'm not alive if I'm not, like I'm moving my, like I work out hard and I push myself like an athlete. So like I do, like my heart rate's up really high. I'm pushing myself. People comment when they see me working out in the gym. Like I'm not like reading a magazine on Stairmaster. I'm like really doing all sorts of, you know, jumping and running and and to come to this place, which is which is where the learning is. I mean, I'm in the middle of it right now, which is to say, like, I'm in a, I'm moving into a different part of my life now. Please, God, I will be fit and healthy and able to move for another fifty years. But, but it's not going to be the same as the first fifty years. I, I can't keep competing with my kids, you know, like on who can run faster. <laughs> like, like I'm in. I'm I'm no longer. I mean, the real learning for me is I am no longer training to be an athlete. I'm training to be fit and healthy and mobile and pain-free for the rest of my life or as much as I can. And the truth is, I don't even have control over that. But I know that pushing myself so hard, working at all hours, like doing this, like I've talked about it and I've said it before, but I feel it in this visceral way that, that also leaves me with a certain excitement about what the next 50 years can look like that... Uh, um, God, his name is just slipping me. Uh, Richard Rohr, who's the Catholic priest, a beautiful writer, he wrote this book called Falling Upward about the second half of life. And it's like what I care, I care much more. And I, maybe it took me longer to get here, but like I've always cared about impact. But now that I have some degree of status and power and privilege in the world, like how do I want to use that to make nice. an impact on things that are important as opposed to just like my own success. And so I'm really, and, and I want to say just one last thing is I, I pulled up while you were talking a poem that I just sent to a friend of mine that I felt so deeply because when my sister-in-law drove me to the emergency room and when, you know, when I was literally on the x-ray table weeping because it was so painful for me. I mean, I was crying and, and the kindness that, that she showed me. And then, and then I got this poem that was sent from a friend to a friend, but I was part of the list that it was sent to, who's going through cancer. And it's, the poem is by Naomi Shihab Nye, and the poem is called Kindness. And I just want to read it to you because I think it'll be touching to you and to everybody. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you. How he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the threads of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, 
like a shadow or a friend. Wow. You know, that's just a sweet poem, uh, but I'm really touched by your story. Hmm. And so to tie it to what I hear, uh, like many of us who are ambitious, we achieve, we achieve, we achieve. And then we realize when we fail that the achievement is not about us. Hmm. And what I hear in your story is the achievement and the kindness is not what I do. It's how others get something because of what I do. Mm-hmm. And that the value is not what I create. It's how what I create creates impact on others. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, if that's some of what you learned from your sister-in-law, from a set of life choices, my bet is from 52 to 82 and 92 and hopefully 102, your life changes. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, that's – and the question we started with is – how do disruptions, how do difficult things, physical, emotional, social, lead to better? And I think that's the, uh, the message or one of the key messages mm-hmm. is that uh, uh, turning a lemon into lemonade. I mean, the stories are trite. Carol Dweck's brilliant work. I'm not failing. I'm learning. Fell upward. I love that metaphor. Fell forward. That's all true. And, and that's true for leadership. It's, it's leaders if you get a leadership job and you never push yourself past your capacity, you'll never grow. Right. In fact, one of the things that I think is a great interview question is, so where did you fail? Mm-hmm. Why did you fail? Was it, what did you learn? Was it the right issue? Um, somebody once said to me, when we have a senior management meeting, and by the way, I could stay on the personal stuff for a long time. I so appreciate your being so tender. Hmm. And, uh, cause I think, People don't realize there's a person behind the, uh, the, the books and the articles. And somebody wrote a, a blog about two years ago, or it should die. And I wrote oh. it back and I said, I'm not dead. And she said, but it's your ideas. And I said, there's a person here. Yeah. And I just find that really rude. So right. I appreciate the humanity. I mean, yeah. I'm in this field because of people and, right. and nurturing people and helping people and and I really appreciate it. But well, actually, let me ask you a question around that because I, I thank you, thank you, and I appreciate it in you too. And and it's um, and I think uh, well, here's my question: the challenge of learning from failure, not just failure, but learning from failure, which is the point that you brought up, which feels really important, is that the next move after failure is risk. And so like, and I'm going to, let's keep, I'm happy to use myself as an example, which is I am used to at a certain level, like, yes, like I've, I've been able, I've been lucky. I've been incredibly fortunate that I could do work that I love, that I feel contributes and that I, that I could, uh, that could provide, right. That I could like make enough money from to provide for my family that I could, contribute that I could do stuff that I love. Like that's the trifecta and it's great. And, and as I, as I hit this next point, uh, you know, this, 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 the, the, the failure that I'm facing and how it's making me think what I want to do is prioritize contribution, not over passion, but over personal gain, like to prioritize. Like I, I, I'm not, I've never left contribution for personal gain. Like I've never done that. 
I've, I, I mean, maybe at times I've done it, but I've, I've really tried to balance those two things to say, I want to always make sure I'm contributing. I want to always be thoughtful about the clients I'm taking on. I always want to work on stuff that I think matters and makes a difference. And I want to do it in a way in which I, which is profitable. But now I'm saying I want to take the risk of prioritizing contribution over profitability, right? And that feels, this is maybe the most vulnerable thing I've said, but it like that feels very scary to me. I mean, I, I've got I, kids in school. I've got like, a, you know, like an apartment on the Upper West Side. Like I, and it, it feels both really important and really risky. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts around it. I, I'm laughing inside. And thank you for a confirmation. Um, I think I shared, I've written, and you were so gracious, I've written a lot of books, and books have to, and you've written some incredible books, The Four Seconds, The 18 Minute, and I could go on and on about the great books you've written. But, but books have a big idea. And I started about two years ago deciding to post less big ideas on LinkedIn. So I write an article every week. I posted 95 articles on LinkedIn the last two years. The article I'm posting, and I post a long post, 1,200 words in a short post. You would appreciate that every other week. Mm -hmm. The article I'm posting next Tuesday, and it's just this issue. Right now, our world is filled with resilience, grit, learning, perseverance. My sense is a lot of that looks back, and that's how I've done coaching. Mm -hmm. What did you learn? What didn't go well? I think there's another coaching model, and I'm going to call it celebrate and savor. Mm -hmm. So if I were coaching you, I'd say, Boy, you've learned from a lot of tough things. At this stage of your life, what would you like to celebrate? Where would you like to be? What's the image you have of yourself in three, five, 10, or 15 years? And start not with what's wrong and where you failed, but start with an aspiration and an opportunity of where you want to go. Mm-hmm. I think, by the way, these are not mutually exclusive. It's your virtuous cycle. You've got to do both. I think almost in some ways what we just talked about has almost been overdone. Where did I fail? What did I learn? How did I grow? I'd like to now ask you, so what is success? Mm-hmm. What's that vision you have of yourself, given where you are? And then it's not about risk. It's about opportunity. I think your will to receive that opportunity overcomes your fear of failure. Fear of failure is the risk. Will to, So where do you want to go, Peter? Who do you want to impact? You know, I, I love that. And I love that. And I, 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 I think we could hold both. Meaning I want to I, I want to have the contribution. I want to um, I, I feel like, you know, emotional courage, the willingness to feel, which is really the thing that drives our willingness to connect. So when I think about David McClelland, right, and he's a three motivations, right, achievement, power, affiliation. So uh, power and influence, let's just put that aside for a second. Uh, you know, if I, if I take that superhuman to human analogy, I would almost say it's actually a process of going from achievement drive to affiliation drive. Like there's a way in which the first half of our life we're about creating and building and achieving. And then the second half, at least this is, maybe, maybe this is not global. Maybe this is just for me. And I certainly don't leave the affiliation behind. It's always been important to me. But now, like connection to others. I, I said to someone the other day uh, at a lunch who, who we were having a, a conversation and I, I, felt, I felt his tears and I felt my tears. And, and it's a, a, a client who's a senior leader in a financial services firm. And I said, you know, like, I feel like when, when, when we have tears in our eyes, our soul is being touched. And to me, success is that 
kind of a connection to myself, to other people, to things bigger than me, that kind of connection as much as possible, right? Like to stay in that kind of connection as much as possible. And that's like an affiliation thing. And it has to do with connecting to myself and connecting to other people. But it's, that's a risk. I mean, yes, it's an opportunity, but to cry as a leader, like to have power and vulnerability at the same time, even though I could say in a coaching conversation, of course, that's what I want it still feels risky. It does. And, and, and you can't, and by the way, risk is good. I mean, we don't change right. unless we risk. You're, right. you're pushing yourself as an athlete is taking a risk. Your right. bike riding is taking a risk. Right. The place that I've gone with that is, well, let me, let me tell a quick vignette. Um, you've mentioned God and religion and, and I hope people can appreciate the power of, of mystery in their lives. Um, a lot of religious prophets say, if you don't repent, you're going to hell. You know, you got to change or you're going to hell. I'd rather say, here's the pathway to heaven. Mm-hmm. And that's the celebration. It's right. celebrating what's next. Right. Now, what's the action plan? And if I were to come back to you in all of this achievement, affiliation and power, and, and I went through, I was reading through the, the, the incredible podcast you've got and seeing all these great ideas of psychological safety, of of your work on the four second pause and mindfulness of Whitney, uh, Johnson's work on disrupt yourself. Again, I'm, I'm encouraging people to look at your podcast. Here's the two word phrase I'm asking now. So that, mm-hmm. so where does that lead that inspires you to become a better sense of yourself? That work has driven me in everything I've done for my career. Mm-hmm. HR is not about HR. HR is about creating a setting where people can fulfill their potential so that the organization wins in the marketplace. Leadership is not about competencies, whatever they are, setting a vision, engaging others, being emotionally intelligent. Leadership is about doing those things so that something good happens to others, either the employees, the customers, or the investors. And for me, that's so that simple two-word phrase moves me a little bit away from where I am to where I'm going. And that's the book that we just did on organization. Mm -hmm. Why do you build a better organization? You build an organization that's reinvented so that the organization wins in the marketplace. Look at the litany of failure, Uh, Kodak, Sears, Toys R Us. Their organizations were not built to win. Mm -hmm. And as a result, thousands of people don't have opportunities. They don't have jobs. We want to create organizations so that they win. And do you feel like this choice that sometimes you hear people say about either people or the organization, like that's a false choice? That's a false choice. I mean, now there is some research. I love data. That's uh, (laughs) it's interesting. The buzz in our field is analytics. Well, good research has been going on for decades. It's not uh, new. It's not new. Analytics. Oh, I'm in fact, somebody just said. I'm really an advocate of analytics, and here's what I think HR people should know. And I wrote him back on LinkedIn. I said, you know, we have data from 90,000 people over 30 years. You've just ignored it all. You're not in favor of analytics. You're in favor of yourself. And, and, and by the way, disagree with me. I, don't, right. I love disagreement. Right. But, but don't deny that analytics have been there. Now, with that in mind, we did some incredibly interesting research. We have data from 1,200 businesses. Mm-hmm with 32,000 respondents. So Mm -hmm. it's a big database. We had an outcome. 
does this business win in the marketplace? Mm-hmm. We had two sets of data. Do they have good skills for their individual leaders? The fingers represent leaders. And do they have the right organization and systems? Mm-hmm. Now, the beauty of analytics is you can partition out what has impact. When we did that statistic, the organization had four times the impact of the people on business outcomes. Mm-hmm. What that says is the team is more important than the individual. Mm-hmm. And so individuals matter. I, I came into this field hoping to create settings where individuals could fulfill their potential, as have you, as I right. read your work. But now I'm realizing if you can't build the system, you're not going to have the sustainability. Right. Um, and that's true in sports. And I like basketball. Um, the leading score in the NBA has been on the team that wins the championship. So leading scorer, team that wins, 15% of the time. Individuals hmm. are talented, but they don't win championships. Right. That's true in hockey, soccer, Australian football. It's true in the Academy Awards. Right. Uh, the winner of the Best Actor or Actress Award, the individual, is in the movie that moves movie of the year 20% of the time. Right. We need great people. We need even greater teams. Right. And that's the stuff that we're looking at. It's funny. I I, uh, I was at Sundance a few years back, and I was walking. Down, my brother's a film producer, and I was walking down uh, the street, and we stopped to with a with a, and met up with a screenwriter uh, who he knew and talking, and he was sort of saying, you know, screenwriters don't get enough credit because you know th- they they are the backbone of the movie. Like everything is created from the screenwriter. There's like there's there's no movie without there's no story without the screenwriter. We walk down a little bit more and we meet up with an actor and the actor says who's a well-known actor and he says, "You know, screenplays black and white ink on paper until we take it and make <laughs> it." Into- and like step by step, we kept walking down the street, that main, the sort of main street in Park City. And like everybody was advocating for the importance of their role over everyone else's role. And then that year I looked and I found the exact same thing that you said, which is, you know, and any best picture there was, I've never seen a best picture that didn't also have best of a bunch of other things, whether it's actor or other things somewhere else on the, you know, kind of in the Oscars committee. So, well, the data is, I mean, we have some evidence you experience in sports. I mean, Michael Jordan is a great case as a basketball player. He won the scoring title six times, three times. He did not win the championship and he scored 36 points a game. So incredible. Six times he won the scoring title and won the championship and scored 30 points a game until he reduced his personal scoring 20 percent, 15 to 20 percent from 36 to 30 and made the team better. They didn't win the championship. Mm -hmm. And I love your example. Yes, we need a good screenwriter. We need a good editor. We need a good director. We need a good actor or actress. But it's the ensemble that brings that together. And and that's what organizations do. And right. so, and I know we're taking a lot of time on this and I don't need to, to beat it to death, but that's what we wrote this book about. How do you create an organization that makes the whole more than the individual parts? Right. And what are some of the emerging insights about what that organization does? Uh, one example, uh, a hot topic today. And, and, and again, we could talk forever and your people are probably... Um, <laughs> probably just scared, but we're both going to die from our physical problem. <laughs> uh, but you know, uh, culture, culture is a hot topic. Right. 
the issue is not culture, as a, and, and I push this and not everybody agrees. Culture is not the roots of the tree. It's not your embedded values, your norms, your expectations. It's how that identity in the marketplace, outside in, becomes real inside. Mm -hmm. And so in almost everything we do in leadership, talent, HR, organization, is building an internal set of uh, actions that connect to an external set of value creators. Right. Uh, if HR doesn't help the organization win in the marketplace, there is no workplace. Right. I mean, it's as easy as that. There is no psychological safety. There is no vision. There is no morale. Right. You've got to win in the marketplace. Now, if you win in the wrong way, you're not going to sustain it. I get that. Well, and if the only thing that matters is winning, you probably will end up winning in the wrong way. And, and it won't be sustained. The right. cycle gets, gets broken because right. people see that. Right. Um, and we see evidence of that for leaders as well as for organizations. But right. what I love about the start of this conversation is it started where I think you and I began our careers around personal. Why do you choose to go into organizational behavior or right. HR or leadership instead of becoming with your brother a great director or movie producer? You have the look. You could have been a great actor. But, no, you're very generous in this whole conversation. Well, I'm <laughs> – I'm I'm reflecting my 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 old age and I'm trying to be affiliative back to you. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, we all could do other things. Right. Uh, and 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 we choose this because I actually believe organizations today are one of the most powerful settings for good and bad mm -hmm. in the world. Right. I mean, I look at where I'm sitting. I'm in a, a house with an ocean behind me. You're in a beautiful setting with a lovely couch, a lovely painting, clothes that we wear, the glasses. Everything that I see surrounding you came because of an organization, mm -hmm. the headset you've got, the technology we're using, the glasses we've got, the picture. Organizations right. created all of that. Right. They took individual cap, cap capability or competence and built that into an organization. That's my passion is how do you navigate that transition mm -hmm. and keep it alive? How do you right. reinvent it? Um, and also, so I think make it human, like really recognizing this, like it's, it's an organization is a gaggle of human beings all trying to work together to accomplish some collective aligned purpose. Absolutely. And, if, and it's hard. Yeah, and it's hard. It is hard. Right. I mean, the most sacred organization in the world is probably the family. Right. And in, in America, at least 50% don't make it. Right. And, and that's the, I mean, that's why this is. Getting individual skills we can get. You go hire somebody who's bright. You you train them. You give them experience. Right. We learn how to do that. Getting those five people in Park City as you walk down that beautiful street mm -hmm. and imagine if you had a lasso and you could lasso the screenwriter, the actor, the director, the the editor and say, there's five of you who are great. Can I bring you together? and create an organization that will go produce something that's magical. Right. Boy, is that exciting. That's, my, that that's happens, my brother's job, right? That's the job of a producer, which is to sort of start and then pull everybody together, and then I'll have him on the podcast. I, you should, because that <laughs> is – and it's magical, right. and it works, and right. it's not – and it's, it's outside in. It's not just about the people or the event. It's building it. Um, quick anecdote, I, a stupid anecdote. Uh, we have three kids. We have 10 grandkids cause we're old. Um, uh, a year ago they said, what are we going to do for family vacation? They voted. We're going to do, uh, we're going to go to Disney. 
And I said, okay, we'll go to Disney. We showed up at Disney with 16 of us, eight kids at the time, eight adults. It's hot. I'm sweaty. And a woman comes up and she says from Disney, this is the happiest place on earth. <laughs> and I looked and I said, not for me. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm paying for 16 people. I'm sweating. We had to stay on property to get the whole experience. And I'm grouchy. And so we go through the Disney day. About two thirds of the way through the day, the kids are acting up. We have two kids in diapers. We go in to see Cinderella. And we were lucky enough because there's so many of us to have a private audience. Our granddaughters, who at the time were eight and seven and seven, they sit there and they're kind of eh, tired and grouchy. I don't know how old your kids are, but eight and seven or girls strikes them. <laughs> out, watch, out walks Cinderella. And the world stops. Oh. And they look at her with these big eyes. And they turn around and they say, Grandpa, she's real. Grandpa, she's beautiful. And then they turn over and they come grab me and say, Grandpa, thank you. And I just melt. And, and Disney go, becomes the happiest place on earth. And I go, well, actually, I went, crap, I'm going to come back. <laughs> I mean, and we're going to do it again. And what hit me is look at all the things Disney does. Screenwriters, scripts, costume, makeup, stories that allow those three daughters right. to go, Grandpa, thank you. Right. That magical moment is not an accident. Right. That is not an accident. Right. And it's that experience that gets replicated in Disney millions of times a year. Right. And, and I think, how do you create that kind of magic so that I, a, a grandpa, I, you know, I'm... I'm not enamored with Cinderella, but I am enamored when my grandkids are right, enamored. Right, right. And, and Disney's figured that out. And right. how do you create that in organizations that is sustainable? And Disney's just a remarkable example. Right. We have been speaking so delightfully with David Ulrich. Dave Ulrich, uh, he has written with Arthur Young, Reinventing the Organization, How Companies Can Deliver Radically Greater Value in Fast-Changing Markets. The book is great. The man is awesome. Uh, I hope you have uh, enjoyed the podcast and gotten value out of it. The book really is a, it's, it's like a, a textbook, not written as a textbook. It's much more interesting, but it's a textbook in that it, it, it paints a very holistic, strategic, integrated view of how to sort of walk through developing or reinventing your organization, developing an organization that could deliver radically greater value. So, Dave, it, as always, it is such a pleasure to connect with you, and I so appreciate you being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Peter, what a privilege. We should uh, – thank you. Yeah. We should uh, – well, we should do a book together. I'm titling it Bregman Ulrich Management Strategy. It would be called Bums. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I, I really appreciate your service to the community by doing these. And uh, – and, I end every coaching session and this was not coaching. You coach me more than I coached you with take care of yourself. And mm, the same, take care and of the yourself. Same. Please take care Thank of you. yourself. You're a valued person in this world. Thank you. So are you. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, 
and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.